The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. And so during this dinner, they usually have a comedian, they'll give a bit, but then the president will attempt to have a comedic bit as well as he kind of pokes fun at the staff, at his staff, at the press, and at uh, world events going on. Well, during the 2006, I know we're going back in time a little bit, uh, 17 years ago, but during the 2006 White House Correspondents' Dinner, for his comedy skit, George W. Bush, he, he had an impressionist stand alongside him on the stage. So George Bush was right here, and then one, uh, one who was trying uh, imitating George W. Bush was standing next to him. It, it was someone who looked like him, talked like him, and acted like him. And, and so during this comedy bit, the Bush impress, impressionist Steve Bridges and the real George W. Bush went back and forth. As Steve would say what George W. Bush was really thinking, what his true feelings were about this person or this topic, but then, so he would say that, and then the actual George W. Bush would give the politically correct answer. If you haven't seen it, it's a it's a fun it's it's a funny bit. I encourage you to go to go to YouTube, uh, type in 2006 uh, White House Correspondents Dinner. It's worth watching, and it, it'll make you laugh. Um, and it's always encouraging to see that your leaders uh, with some self-deprecating humor. Um, but the impressionist Steve Bridges, he, he actually grew up with Emily's father, and they were like brothers to one another, really close. Steve, he, he was known throughout Hollywood as the go-to impressionist for presidents, for television characters, and for broadcasters. And he was most well-known for, for his ability to impersonate George W. Bush and also Barack Obama and tragically the uh, he he was a he was our he was our brother in Christ but tragically the Lord took him at a young age but while while he was still alive he uh, Steve he, he invited Emily and her family backstage with him as at, when he went on the Jay Leno show to impersonate Barack Obama but why why do I share that story with you this morning it, to be skilled in imitation requires yes. That you have a good makeup artist and you look like the person you're trying to imitate. But even more than that, to be a good impressionist, you have to, in a sense, try to actually become that person. To, to think the way they think. To speak the way they speak. To gesture the way they gesture. To act the way they act. You, you have to imitate, to become, to, be, to embody that person, to be a good impressionist. Well, this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, and that's our text this morning, Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2, the, the Apostle Paul, he gives us a simple yet incredibly profound command. And that is this, be imitators of God. And so the main point of our passage and the main point of my sermon this morning is this. If you're writing notes, you can jot this down. Everything else is going to flow from this one sentence. As God's beloved children, we are to be imitators of him by walking in love as we daily live near the cross. As God's beloved children, we are to be imitators of him by walking in love as we daily live near the cross. And so let's read our 
passage this morning. And, and again, church, I'll remind you, I try to remind you every Sunday, but after I read this, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and your response will be, thanks be to God. God's word says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would do a supernatural work this morning. That that, that you would reveal to us anything that's impeding our active display of your love in our life. Father, I pray that we would be a people marked by your love. That we would be a people who walk in your love and in doing so, as you are loved to imitate you in this world. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would be at work now. You'd open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first this morning, we are called, commanded, which might sound like an audacious command on face at face value, but we are commanded to be imitators of God. Notice with me the therefore. <laughs> and it's the old, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it to repeat it. To, that way you can say it when, you, when you're reading your own Bibles. But anytime you see a therefore, you do what? You go back and you see what it's there for. And, and those therefores are connecting words. They help you to see the flow of argument that the Apostle Paul and the other biblical authors are making. And so in light of what Paul is calling, what, what, in light of what is Paul calling us to imitate God? Well, let's go back to chapter four at the end of verse 32, where Paul says this, that we are to be kind to one another, we're to be tenderhearted, we're to forgive one another. But this is the key word. And I think this is what Paul is referencing with it. Therefore, he says, as God in Christ forgave you. And so because we have been forgiven by God, Because of Christ's work on the cross, we are therefore now, as forgiven people, called to be imitators of God. And and notice also with me that the word that comes after therefore, that's a key word. We're we're not going to go word by word, but we need to look at these first two words. What's the word after the therefore? It's be, right? Not do, be. It, It can be translated also become, and so become imitators of God. The, the verb isn't imitate. The verb is be. It's not as, therefore, it's not a state of doing, but a state of being a character, who you are as a person. And this is key. Before we are called to do in the Christian life, we are first called to be Christians, to be followers of Jesus, to be like him. In, in other words, Christianity is not like other religions where the primary purpose is to restrain and to conform our behavior to an external set of standards. Yes, we are called to live with moral restraint and self-control. But first and foremost, we are called not to conform to a set of standards, but to conform our lives to Jesus, to be imitators of God. And maybe some of you this morning, you're still living under the, the paradigm that the Christian life, it's mainly about a set of rules. And what are the things I need to do? What's the checklist that I need to go through every single day? 
but above all else, the focus of the Christian life. In the power of the gospel, it's not in behavior modification as much as it is in heart transformation. Another way to put it, Christianity, being a Christian, it's not an outside-in kind of work. Where we do things on the outside to try to make us change on the inside. It's we are changed by grace inside. And therefore, because of the change, we, are now, we now walk differently in this lifetime. And so Christianity is not about becoming a better version of yourself. It's becoming more like Jesus. It's not self-improvement as much as it is self-denial. It's not living for yourself, but rather dying to yourself. And we do this. Why? Because it is Christ who now lives in you. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, he would put it this way. If you have been raised with Christ, then Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. Why? Why do we do this? Paul says this because you have died and your life is now hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. Paul would put it another way, the same idea, but another way in Galatians 2.20 where he would say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ, he now lives in me. And so he said, now the life I now live by the flesh, then I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, so we are called to conform our lives to Jesus. We're called to be imitators of God. But, but as you know, to, to become more like someone, right, you need to spend time with that person because the more you spend time with someone the more you will become like them and that's what psychologists they they call they term they, they got a term for everything don't they uh, but they they call this behavioral mimicry but 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 it's the idea that you know and we see it manifest in, in children especially that that want children they'll often resemble their parents right in their mannerisms in their speech in their behavior in their priorities and in, 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 in as they grow up overall in their character it's not a one for one but it often is this case why why because members of a family you're when you are a member of a family as children spend more time with their parents they begin to bear the family resemblance and this is strikingly true of our daughter, Ruby. Uh, not, not only is Ruby a spin, spitting image of Emily, right? And you should see uh, side-by-side pictures of when Emily was six and, and Ruby. That it's like it's, they're twins. Uh, but Ruby, she's also starting to pick up some of Emily and I's mannerisms and way of life. All the good one from Emily, all the, all the not so good maybe from, from me, I don't know. But, uh, but she's starting to bear the family resemblance, so much so that we've had people tell us, you are your mother's, or tell Ruby, you are your mother's child. And, and so I want to pause and I want to I ask you this morning, do you bear the family resemblance? That, that after people spend enough time around you, it becomes clear and evident to them that you are your heavenly father's child. Become, therefore, Paul says, imitators of God as beloved children. 
Now, remember, to become more like someone, you have to spend time with that person. And so I'm not asking you this morning, do you read your Bible regularly? I hope you do. That, that is foundational. That's step one. But, but the purpose of when we read our Bibles is to spend time with our God. God speaks to us through his word, by his spirit, and we speak to him through prayer. And so the goal isn't only Bible study, it's communion. Not, not just gaining information, but growing in conversation. Not increasing our familiarity about Jesus, but deepening our relationship with Jesus. Because again, to become more like someone, you have to spend time with that person. So then practically, how should we imitate God? <laughs> This can be really beneficial for your life or it can be really damaging for your life. There, there are two different ways people try to become like God, imitate God in our world. People who aren't Christians, they try to become like God out of pride for self-glory. And, and they do so in an attempt to displace and to dethrone God uh, from his throne. In, in short, the world seeks to be like God by actually trying to become their own gods. Well, it goes without saying that this is not what Paul calls us to when he says, be therefore imitators of God. So, so then how are we to imitate God? Well, as Christians, we are to imitate God, not out of pride, but in humility as we depend on the Holy Spirit's power. Not, not for self-glory, but to showcase the glory of our great God. Not, not to seek to dethrone him, but to lift high his name and to put his greatness on display. But maybe even more practically, what are the, the daily ways we can imitate God in life? But hang with me here. Uh, I'm going to throw some words at you, but hang with me, please, through it, and we'll, um, I'll, I'll define it. But theologians, they have what's called, they, they have termed what's called, hang with me, in, incommunicable and communicable attributes of God. And so incommunicable attributes of God, they're the attributes of God that make him God and us not. These are the attributes that only God himself can possess and we do not share in. We can think of his self-existence. He needs no one and nothing to exist. His eternality, he was, he is, and he will be. His immutability, meaning he cannot change. Our God, he is incapable of change because to change means degrees of perfection and he is perfect. Therefore, he cannot change. Change to what? He is the highest of perfections. His infinitude, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his transcendence, his sovereignty, and so on. These are the attributes of God that make God God and us not and so for us to, therefore, try to imitate those attributes is called blasphemy. We don't want to do that. So, so while we aren't called to imitate God and his incommunicable attributes, we are, therefore, however, called to imitate God in what's called his communicable attributes. Those that he shares with us. Since we are created in God's image, we bear some of his attributes, and this would be something like his, his truthfulness, his wisdom, his holiness, his love, his goodness, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his patience, and so on. And so while if we were to imitate God in his 
incommunicable attributes, that would be called blasphemy. If we imitate God in his communicable attributes in these ways, that's called sanctification. That's called growing in the Christian life. And so Paul says in our lives, we are to be imitators of God. But notice with me, how does Paul qualify that statement? How does he say? He says, as beloved children. And so the way we are empowered to to be imitators of God is by cherishing and trusting in his grace and how he has made us, church, his children. A, A true comprehension of grace. It's the most potent and powerful change agent in the world. Because when you begin to understand the scandalous grace of God and the costly love of Christ, when you begin to understand the great length and depth that Jesus went for you to redeem you and to make you a son and a daughter of God, you cannot help but be changed. It is one thing, right? And if this, this phrase is thrown out a lot in our world. It is one thing to hear the phrase, God loves you. And that is true. He does. But when you begin to understand the depth of his love, when you begin to realize that though you were, were a hostile and treasonous and rebellious enemy of God, and that despite God knowing the deepest and the darkest and most deeply hidden areas of your life, the, the most wicked and heinous sins that you've ever committed, despite God knowing all of that, that from eternity past, he still set his love on you. And he still sent his son to die a brutal and humiliating death on the cross for you. He did all of this. He gave his one and only beloved son in order to make you and me his beloved children. What love and what grace the father has shown toward us. Remember what Paul would say in Ephesians 2, we walked through it. But the description he gave of us, it wasn't, it's not so rosy, right? He, he says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're children of disobedience. We're children of wrath. We, we were going about just pursuing our own human passions in this lifetime. And if we were to peel back the facade, right, that we build up for ourselves, you know, a lot of times we try to hide the fact that we are sinners before God. But Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 give a very true description of who we are. And that makes the next two words then the most astounding words, I think, in all of the Bible. But God. Despite who we are as treasonous and rebellious sinners against him, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he set his love upon us, church, and he made us alive together with Christ. Paul would say, by grace, you have been saved. And so now, church, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us, that we, we sinners though we are, we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so because We are the beloved children of God. We are then called to become like him, to bear the family resemblance. 
to, to be holy as he is holy, to love as he is love, to be merciful as he is merciful, to forgive as he has forgiven us, to be patient as he is with us, to lay down our lives for others as he has laid down his life for us. In short, what it means to be imitators of God is to become more like Jesus. The Apostle John, he he says this, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in Christ, he ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Now, now if you're you're listening and if you're tracking, then, then that might sound a little bit despairing, right? How in the world am I supposed to live and be like Jesus? Listen, we can never embody these qualities to the same degree as he did. For we are creature and he is creator. However, we are called, we are commanded, we are beckoned to embody these qualities, not to the same degree, but in the same manner that he did. In the same likeness, in the same way as he loved, we are to love. Does that make sense? Not, not to the same extent, to the same height, because we never could, but in the same way that he did in his life. And so the heart of a Christian maybe is something like this. To be like Jesus, to bear his name, to be like Jesus, my heart's only aim. While others strive for wealth and fame, to be like Jesus, my life's highest acclaim. We, we are called to be imitators of God. But secondly, we are also called to be, to walk in God's love. If we are called to be imitators of God, then follow with me. And if God is love, then it makes sense that the next command Paul would give is walk in love. And so when we do rest in God's love, when we realize, when we remember, when we rest in the truth that we are the beloved children of God, we will be filled then to walk in his love. Paul, he uses that word there, walk, to convey an active, an intentional, a purposeful way of living. He, he, he doesn't say wonder and stumble around in life until you feel like walking in God's love. No, he uses the imperative and the imagery of a purposeful walking. In Luke 9, 51, it says that when the, the week leading up to Jerusalem, it says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And I think that's a good picture for us when it means when we think about walking in love. We are to set our face to the task of living in such a way that everything in your life, every thought, every desire, every word, every interaction, every deed, everything in life, we, we should seek for it to be filtered through and for it to flow from the love of God within us. Or maybe another way to put it, maybe to bring that down a little bit. Another way to put that, true godly living is marked by godly love. The Apostle John, he'd say this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that he sent his only son into this world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Now, now, not only only is it important to obey the command to walk in love, it is also equally important. If we are commanded to love, then we need to know what it means to, we need to know what what love is, what godly love is, right? In in our world today, that the word love, right? We love love, we love love, right? We, um, you know, and and love means to affirm and to accept any sort of behavior anyone might want to identify with. And so the Bible clearly teaches that God's love, it will never be accepting or affirming of a sinful lifestyle. And don't miss this. If we begin to define love according to our own standards rather than according to God's standard as revealed in his word, if we seek to define love how we want it, we are in effect then saying this, that we know how to love better than God himself knows how to love. Now, to be sure, we are called to patiently love people through their sinful choices, but we do so without affirming the sin that will lead to their eternal destruction. We love them wherever they may be, and we pray for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with them. So if we aren't then to define love as the world does, how, do we, how are we to understand what love is, what true godly love is? Well, God graciously has shown us what love is in his word. He says this. God says that love is patient, right? Maybe, maybe this was said at your marriage or at your, at your wedding. <laughs> love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It, it, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. I love it bears all things it believes all things it hopes all things and it endures all things if you want to know what true godly love looks like you have to look no further than first corinthians 13 and you have to look no further than the cross as it was put on display and so i want to ask you this question this morning church is your life marked by this kind of love Do do people get a little taste of God's love by how you treat them and interact with them? What about your spouse, your children, your family? Maybe that difficult neighbor. Maybe that cantankerous coworker. It it, it is easy for us to love those who are easily lovable, right? Those who are easy to love, right? It's easy to love, But that kind of love, it's a mere human love. It's a reactionary love. It's a conditioned love. A love that is able to originate from within us. But when our love is subsumed in God's love, when our love originates not from within but from above, then we will love those whom the world deems as unlovable. We will relationally pursue those who can't materially benefit us. We will forgive those who have wronged us. And, church, to, to love with the love of God means that we will lay down our lives. We will forgo fortune, safety, comfort, preferences, wants, desires, reputations, all of that. And we will embrace simplicity, risk, discomfort, self-denial, scorn, suffering, and anonymity. People don't need to know what we're doing. 
right? We will give of ourselves to see the lost know Christ. This is what it means to love with the love of God. And we know that because is this not the way Jesus has loved us? We are called to be imitators of God by walking in his love. But the only way we can do that, church, is finally, number three, if we live near the cross. Let's read verse two. Where the Apostle Paul says this, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so the only way we can walk in love, the only way we can deny ourselves in love sacrificially is if we daily remember the self-denying and the sacrificial love of Jesus for you and for me. That we remember he, he left heaven's throne. He took on human flesh. He did that to take on our sin on the cross. He gave himself up for us that through his death we might be redeemed. And notice that phrase Paul uses to describe Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. That, that it was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, now, again, if you're listening and if you're thinking, if you're tracking, how in the world could, could a, a brutal, gruesome death be a fragrant offering? How, how, could it be, how could that ever be pleasing to God? When the book of Leviticus, Israel was commanded to perform different offerings and sacrifices to God. And, and if you're tracking with our two-year Bible reading plan, hey, you're, you're on track. We just read through Leviticus. We, we made it through uh, a, a couple, about a month, a month and a half ago. Um, but in the book of Leviticus, five offerings were commanded to Israel. That, that of uh, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. And so the first three offerings... The, the burnt, the grain, and the peace offering, the book of Leviticus says that they were a pleasing aroma to God. And so the point of these offerings, these pleasing aromas to God, they were to point us to and to prepare us for the greatest offering and sacrifice that was ever offered up to God. And that is the cross of Christ. Indeed, at Calvary, all of those Old Testament sacrifices, they were coming to an end as the shadow, it gave way to the substance. Because on the cross, Jesus became our once for all, final, perfect, sufficient sacrifice for sin. And so again, you may be asking the question, how though was a, is a gruesome, barbaric death pleasing to God? Quickly, three, three ways I think it's pleasing to God. Number one, the cross was a fragrant offering to God because he was pleased by the perfect obedience of his son. That he perfectly submitted to the father's will and that he went to the cross. You'll remember that famous scene of Gethsemane where Jesus sweating drops of blood, knowing the agony and the wrath that he was to endure for you and for me. And what does he say? Father, if there's any other way, any other way, please let this pass before me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cross was a pleasing aroma to God because of the perfect obedience of his son. Secondly, the cross was a fragrant offering to God because it was, he was pleased by, big word, we're going to talk about it, by the propitiation of Christ. 
propitiation, just think of it this way. Propitiation, it's a wrath-removing substitute. Wrath-removing substitute. The cross, it, it isn't just a powerful picture of love. It is. It is a glorious picture of love. But it is also a powerful picture of God's hatred for sin. Because God is holy, he hates sin. He cannot abide with sin. And therefore, our sin, it must be punished. And so on the cross and in our place as our substitute, Jesus bore the punishment we deserved for our sin. He took our sin. He bore our shame. He endured God's wrath. So much so that God's wrath towards sin, it was completely, perfectly, fully satisfied by Jesus's death on the cross for whoever would trust in him in in the old testament there there was a every year the the high priest would would uh, on the day of atonement he, he would give it uh he would put forth the sacrifice and, and and with the sacrifice of the ram he would put one hand one hand on the head of the ram and then the other hand he would have a knife and so he put his hand on the head of the ram and he would slit the throat of this ram and in effect, when he did that, he was placing the sins of Israel on this ram, sacrificing this ram in the place of Israel so that God's judgment would fall on the ram and that God's mercy would flow toward Israel. Listen, church, that is a shadow of what actually happened on the cross. Jesus He didn't symbolically take our sin. He actually took your sin and my sin on the cross. He didn't symbolically endure God's wrath. He actually endured the full punishment of God for your sin and my sin. And he did so, so that God's judgment would fall on Jesus and that his mercy might flow to you and to me. And through the cross, through his death on the cross, God's wrath was satisfied. And therefore, because his wrath is perfectly satisfied for all who trust in him, it is a pleasing aroma to God. And, and if you're in this room this morning and, and you might think, I, you know, I've been going to church my whole life, yet, yet I haven't fully trusted in Jesus. I, I want to ask you this question. Would you rather endure the judgment of God yourself Or would you rather trust in the one who endured the judgment of God for you? The Bible says if you repent of your sin and trust in him, you can be forgiven and find forgiveness and new life. Finally, the cross was a fragrant offering to God because he was pleased by the redemption that it gives us. Because of the cross, all who believe in Christ for salvation are washed by their sins through the blood of Jesus. Because of the cross, all who turn to Christ find forgiveness. And because of the cross, those who were once enemies of God are now reclaimed sons and daughters of God. Through the cross, God's holiness, it is maintained because sin is punished. And through the cross, God's love is displayed because sinners are pardoned. This is why Jesus is gruesome, his bloody, his barbaric death. That's why it was and it still is today a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And so in closing, I want to encourage you then to live near the cross. Make your glory, your boast in life, the cross of Jesus. And so when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within Upward, look and see him there who made an end 
to all your sin. So because the sinless Savior died, your sinful soul, it is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and to pardon you. I'll end our sermon this morning by quoting Charles Spurgeon when he said this. We owe all to Jesus crucified. Amen, church. We owe all to Jesus crucified. What what is your life, my brethren, but the cross? From where comes the bread of your soul but the cross? What is your joy but the cross? What is your delight? What is your heaven but the blessed one what's crucified for you who ever lives to make intercession for you? And so cling to the cross. Put both arms around it. Hold to the crucified and never let him go. Come afresh to the cross at this moment and rest there now forever. Then, he said, what's the effect of that? Then, with the power of God resting upon you, go forth and preach the cross. Tell the story of the bleeding lamb. Christ has died. Atonement is complete. God is satisfied. Peace is proclaimed. Advanced, you saints, to certain victory. For you shall overcome through the blood of the lamb. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.